You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. everyone and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Stonefly has uh, it initially caught our eyes because um, in our view, it is probably the most interesting of the North Korean-sponsored um, espionage groups. That's Dick O'Brien. He's principal editor at Symantec. The research we're discussing today is titled Stonefly. North korea linked spying operation continues to hit high-value targets. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So yeah, they're, they're interesting for a few reasons. Um, they've been around for a good while. Um, I think they first appeared around uh, 2009. Mm. And at the start, they were like, a, you know, your, your, what was the time, your, your prototypical North Korean-sponsored um, um, group. So they were involved in sort of lots of noisy, um, you know, not terribly sophisticated attacks. So they, they started out doing distributed denial of service attacks against uh, targets in, in South Korea and the US. And, you know, they kind of pop up every couple of years um, with DDoS attacks. Then they introduced a backdoor Trojan. They were obviously stealing some information. They were involved in some disk wiping attacks in, um, I think, 2013. But something interesting happened to them along the way. Sometime either in 2019 or probably sometime before that, they completely pivoted in, into something very, very different. And since that time, they have been a focused on a very small number 
of espionage attacks. And they're very tightly focused on what we believe to be acquiring um, kind of a sensitive or classified or, or, or um, advanced uh, intellectual property. So they seem to be like this really super focused specialist team who are just kind of going after this type of information. So every time we see a stonefly attack, the victim is, is always really, really interesting. What makes you believe that this is the same group that we'd seen previously, you know, since 2009? If they updated their techniques and, and indeed headed in a different direction, are there th things that point to it still being a, a continuation of the same group? There's, there's definitely a, a continuation in terms of the tool set used. Um, so you can kind of, you know, obviously the tools they use today are of no resemblance to what the tools they started out with. But there is a kind of a daisy chain or an overlap of tools used all along the way. So these days, um, they use a custom backdoor Trojan um, that we call uh, Preft. Um, I think some other vendors uh, call it D-Track or Veil4. And that's kind of the, from our perspective, the, the calling card, because they're the only group who use that particular backdoor. So, yeah, we've been able to kind of uh, follow them through the years, um, through overlapping of, of tool sets. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go through together this uh, latest target that you all analyzed here in, in the research. Can you walk us through step by step? What exactly did you all witness? What we came across, it was, it was kind of a, an interesting attack from our perspective because uh, initially we, we thought it might be ransomware uh, because we were doing a ransomware investigation uh, again, uh, that was another customer on, on you know, completely ge ge different geographic uh, investigation and a, a completely ge different geographic location. And uh, we, we found a, a tool there that we thought was linked to the ransomware. And then we saw it on this particular organization. And uh, we were, you know, we, we were giving them the heads up that there may be some ransomware actors on their network. Um, and then it turned out that the tool wasn't linked to the uh, ransomware attackers at all, that it was actually a stonefly tool. Um, so then, of course, you know, we, we spun up our investigation on it. And what we found was uh, a long-term intrusion against this organization. Well, let's go through it, I mean, step by step. But when you all initially started the investigation, what sort of things caught your eye? The means of entry was, was uh, interesting enough. Uh, we believe it was uh, a, um exploitation of the, the Log4j vulnerability, which I guess most people would be familiar with. It, it really mm -hmm. um, hit the news um, back in, in December. Um, I say we believe um, that's because an exploit was run uh, for this vulnerability against a um, VMware view server that was publicly facing. And the exploit ran. And then within 24 hours, I think it was 17 hours, we saw our first evidence of what was definitely Stonefly activity on the computer. So given the time frame there, you know, it, it seems that this, this was their way into the, into the network. Um, so they got onto uh, this server and uh, they did um, a lot of groundwork, I guess, in terms of establishing a persistent presence. So they put the back door there. They got some communications back to uh, their command and control server. There's evidence of them dumping credentials and things like that. And then once they kind of got all the, the information that they needed 
uh, they began moving laterally across the network. I think it was about 18 computers um, in total uh, that, mm. they, that they got onto. So, you know, a, a good opportunity for them to, to kind of look around uh, and, and see if they can find anything interesting. Let's talk about that Preft backdoor itself. Um, I mean, you all pointed out that it seemed to be that they'd updated it uh, in this particular campaign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and this is this is not uncommon uh, for an actor like Stonefly. They'll continuously develop their malware. Um, at the very least, you know, they'll 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 adopt uh, different obfuscation techniques to try and uh, avoid. Uh, triggering uh, any security alerts. And in this case, they added a couple of additional um, bits of functionality. And I think it was um, an ability in this case to support a wider range of um, plugins. Um, So I think the previous versions we'd seen could only uh, handle two different types of plugins, and this one could handle four uh, executable BBS uh, batch files and shellcode. Well, walk me through exactly sort of step-by-step step what Preft does when it, when it kicks into action. It is, uh, it's essentially, it's a backdoor Trojan. Um, so you're, you have a, a persistent presence on, on, on the victim's machine. So it does uh, have the kind of functionality that allows you to uh, perform certain actions on the computer, uh, take information and identify it for, for exfiltration. And so, was there any sense for exactly what they were after here? Was was there any you know uh, pattern in the types of things they seem to be interested in exfiltrating? What I would say is is that I would say this company I can't say too much about them, but they're a very mm. specialized engineering company. So they work in the energy sector, um, particularly energy offshore. Uh, type of, of um, energy extraction, and, and they also work with the military. So presumably, they're kind of looking for information about, you know, how they do things or how they work with the potential to kind of leverage that intellectual property and in whatever they wanted to do themselves. You know, you mentioned at the outset that the sort of historically uh, North Korea kind of came on the scene and, and were had a reputation for being noisy and, and not especially nuanced. Uh, where where do they stand today? How how do they rate on the on the global stage? It's an interesting uh, country uh, to look at from an espionage perspective. I guess first of all, the, the whole um, North Korean cyber espionage scene it, it's quite opaque. Um, I mean, like you know, as espionage tends to be. I mean, you don't know about every every country's espionage operations in detail, but in North Korea, it's, it's particularly so. Uh, so we, we have very little visibility or insights into uh, the overall structure of it, you know. And indeed, uh, you know, lots of people just tend to uh, refer to North Korean espionage operations under just one umbrella name, uh, which uh, is, is Lazarus. And then the U.S. government uh, call it uh, Hidden Cobra. Uh, but we, we've seen several kind of distinct patterns of activity, which suggests that there are at least several distinct teams operating uh, there. Um, so how, how do they, they're unusual too in that um, they, they carry out a lot of financially motivated attacks, 
which uh, isn't really within the uh, the remit of other uh, countries' intelligence services. Um, and yeah, you know, anytime you do see it happening with other state-sponsored actors, we usually suspect it's some contractor doing it, you know, earning some money on the side. But uh, with with North Korea, it's uh, it's definitely part of their core uh, goals is to acquire foreign currency. Um, so we've seen them uh, do, uh, you know, do everything from kind of stealing multi-million dollar um, amounts from, from banks. Uh, we've seen them being involved in ATM type fraud. Uh, they're quite interested in cryptocurrencies and, and that sort of thing, you know. Um, so I think the regime there sees it as one way of, of getting uh, foreign currency. So that's quite unusual. Um, but yeah, there are some some teams that are very specialized that would be kind of, you know, would would, would uh, be comparable to other state-sponsored actors in this front. Uh, so there's a, an ongoing campaign called Operation Dream Job, uh, which tends to target different industry sectors at a time, in usually probably in pursuit of technology or intellectual property. Um, and that, that would be up there with kind of most second-tier nation-state-sponsored um, espionage actors. And then there's, there's people like Stonefly who seem to be super uh, focused uh, on, on, on a very small number of selective targets. Can you give us some insights into what happens with an incident like this when it comes to incident response? I mean, something like this gets discovered. What, 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 how, how do you kick into action here? What sort of things go into play? For us ourselves, um, I guess it usually starts with um, a little bit of fragmentary evidence we find, uncover one tool or something the attacker does, uh, generates an alert, and we follow it up. And then it's really kind of a case of um, following the breadcrumbs, um, realizing and trying to figure out where this tool came from, what, what was used to install it, and then if the, you know, uh, and, and really trying to trace the attack back to the origin and then forward to the, the ultimate payload or, or, and, and map it out in that way. Um, and then once we kind of have a reasonably good understanding of, of what we're dealing with, um, we'd often, you know, obviously, you know, we'd uh, uh, update uh, our product to, uh, you know, make sure it doesn't happen again. But we'd also notify the customer, um, which can be anything from an email to maybe a phone call or something like that to explain what we discovered on their network and the significance of this. You know, um, mm. it's uh, you know, in, in the case of something like Stonefly, all right, we would do uh, we'd make an effort to um, have a conversation with them about it. Right, right. I suppose if you're on Stonefly's uh, radar, it is uh, undoubtedly a, a serious uh, situation for you. Uh, yeah, it is. It is because um, a lot of their targets um, are dealing with with um, you know highly classified stuff. You know that you know and and everything they go after tends to have like either a civilian or military application. So I think you know uh, any organization that has been targeted by Stonefly would want to know about it and would would be very worried about uh, what they're trying to get uh, going by what we've seen from their attacks. So what are your recommendations then in, in terms of organizations protecting themselves? Uh, what are your words of wisdom there? The words of wisdom, I mean, for Stonefly, the, the words of wisdom are for as they would apply for any um, espionage operation, um, which, which is to kind of, um, you know, educate yourself about how these attacks typically unfold and then 
try and implement, I guess, a multi-layered approach to your security so that you don't really have any single point of failure. In this case, the means of, uh, of access appear to be Log4j. Um, so that server was unpatched for some reason. Um, so, you know, obviously we don't know why. Organizations have different patching policies and what have you. But it does go to show the importance of, um, of uh, patching vulnerabilities in as timely a manner as you can, especially on public-facing servers, because uh, you know, if that wasn't there, the attackers may have found it much harder uh, to get in, if not impossible. Our thanks to Dick O'Brien from Symantec for joining us. The research is titled Stonefly. North Korea-linked spying operation continues to hit high-value targets. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Gelfand, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.